Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. Hey friends, uh, this is the second part of the conversation with Richard Rohr about the universal Christ. And if you didn't listen to the first part, uh, you, you probably should. It's really good. Um, but uh, if not, you're jumping in halfway uh, through the conversation, and I think you're going to really enjoy this one. So here we go. Okay, we're going to come back to sin. But you also make another point in the book that uh, you're talking about Mary, which we're going to talk about Mary. And stuff. Oh, we got, we yeah. got there because, you know, I, like as the evangelical, the real one, not the one who's been influenced by Notre Dame. Um, <laughs> Our lady. Yeah, yeah. Our lady. <laughs> but you talk about how uh, some deities like come out of the gr- out of the ground and they're more oh, feminine yeah. ones, and then the ones that come from the, the sky. He- yeah, the sky are the the more masculine. I'm told that's true by mythologists that feminine gods are coming out of the water or out of the earth, and male gods are always flying around the sky. Interesting. <laughs> if it's true, it explains a lot. Yeah. So okay, but we're saying yeah. okay, Christ. Uh, Hold on. All th- not all things are in Christ, but say it again. I got it wrong. He uh, said Christ is in all things. But and I things- corrected you. <laughs> <laughs> and I, and I said, no, it's not that all Christ is in all things. All things are in Christ. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we're uh we're starting with the framework that this Oh, you talk about this in the book that that Jesus doesn't come into reality, but reality comes out of or Christ. Christ. Christ doesn't come into our reality, but all reality comes out of Christ. He is the archetype of the whole enchilada. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So the foundation is Christ. Again, this is the John stuff. Everything created. And this is not now to be understood in a religious way of talking about joining the Christian religion. So you know, mm-hmm. our understanding of Christ is much bigger. But I, I'm a pastor. I need to say, yeah, you, you do. If you come to my church, you're really in. Like you're really in, super <laughs> tight with Christ. But okay, for the rest of everyone outside of my church, no, I, I'm, I'm joking. I'm saying no, that talking you're to doing Jesus. Well, you're doing well. Christ is the reality that everything comes out of. Yeah. And then we're going back to sin here. But there is, there's uh, powers and principalities in this age that are resistant to. Uh, I just talked to Miroslav Volf. His language was the good life. Well, you've read him, too. Yeah, just have him talk to him yesterday. you got a good mind. Yeah, you like, you've read I haven't read him in depth, but mm. whenever I have, I wish I had a mind like his. He's a, yeah. he's a smart one. He you guys is. should be friends. Mm. You guys could be, you both How old have, a guy is he? Uh, he just has a, he had a, has a baby who's like a year and a half old. Oh, so he's a young so, man. So he's, a, he's older than me. He's probably... 60, I would guess. Oh, he is 60. But, but he's, okay. he's got to be young if he's taking care of a year and a half yes, old baby. Yes, yes. Anyway, uh, but he talks about, like the, the good life. That's his language for, for human flourishing. It, it's maybe a shorthand for the kingdom of God. Oh. And so that's his language and how, how that engages in a pluralistic society. Anyway, but we have the way of God, um, love or however we want to describe that. And then the powers and principalities exist in this world against that. So how... How do we process if God created the world, the first is incarnation, the first incarnation is creation, yet within creation there is anti God, anti Christ? Pushback. Yeah. Let's call it that. Let's just put it in the categories which science now affirms better than religion. Our religious language was death and resurrection. 
Okay. That is the pattern of reality. Mm -hmm. There is no death without resurrection. There is no resurrection without death. They are two sides flowing together. Now let's just look at the physical universe. We'd perhaps call it loss and renewal. Okay. That, I mean, you know, what has there been five uh, complete destructions or freezings over the planet, mass extinctions. Mm -hmm. That's where the, I mean, God is not efficient. And I, I would love to watch nature shows, but then I honestly have to turn away when I'll see two big lions jumping on a little antelope or something. You yeah. Know? It's just, oh, dang it. I was watching one of those it. shows with my daughters and I was like, whoa, nope. Yep, can't yeah. watch. Nature is not always nice. No, it isn't. So, I mean, nothing stays the same for long. Just think of loss as change. Okay. And now that's the thing that so many Christians have tried to avoid change, revealing we don't really trust the Paschal mystery or the death and resurrection cycle. Because change implies loss. Uh, there's loss of something always. Mm. Huh? Yeah. Um, entropy, even the, the physicists would call it. So... Um, once we see this is the pattern of everything, that nothing lives unless something else dies, and we in our bodies are a part of that cycle, then we stop fighting it so much. I mean, who of us doesn't want to live? I don't like discomfort even any more than you do. But uh, I'm much more able to allow it, trust it, see God in it, if I can see it as an act of solidarity with someone in a prison cell, suddenly it becomes much easier. Um, so it, it's a reframing of death and resurrection. Now, again, we get back to Jesus, that he did this in personal, dramatic, immediate, concrete form. So we couldn't miss the message. But what did we do with that? We made it into a, an atonement theory so we could thank Jesus mm -hmm. instead of follow Jesus. Again, Jesus told us to follow him. He didn't tell us to worship the cross, mm -hmm. which we Catholics certainly did. You have a section about the penal substitution in the book, and here's this great line. The cross uh, legitimizes, proves, uses everything. Yeah. Crux probat omnia, we said in Latin. Yeah. Is that a is that a Catholic phrase? Yes. Okay. Crux so probat omnia. So you didn't come up with that. No, no, no. That's not. I mean, well, I tried to explain it because usually you're just left with the phrase, not the explanation. Okay. Well, tell us for you those know, of us who you've haven't heard me talk about the scapegoat mechanism. How? Yeah. Uh, you know, Gerard's work, right? Rene Gerard's work. It's not much of an exaggeration. Once you get the, the issues that God was trying to address through Jesus on the cross, how human culture is self-destructive, how human culture avoids the truth, as I hope I say in the book, it isn't saying God wants violence. We want violence. Yeah. The cross is a message about humanity's capacity to hate what it should love. Mm -hmm. And... and when we didn't recognize the whole life of Jesus as a divine act of solidarity with entire humanity at every stage, we missed falling in love with God. Mm 
Mm. You know, uh, because we don't see God as choosing to be one with us in everything. Yeah. But it's just this last three hours of his life, uh, which leaves the rest of history empty of God, as I said before. And we we, we want it in our, like, us versus them mentality, like our violent mentality, our competitiveness. Uh, you reference a story when you were a young priest in Cincinnati where you said something about maybe it's a win-win. Maybe what the cross is, oh, yes, is a win-win, yes. and then you have this businessman come up to you and, Father, Father, well, that's not even you interesting. You read my books too well. What? Yeah, that would not even be interesting. Yeah, yes. that wouldn't be interesting. Okay, well, speaking of people who didn't read it too well, Jason, <laughs> do you have a... <laughs> yeah, can I throw one more? You are a seven. I can see a good sense of humor. Okay. <laughs> don't, don't give him that. No. Um, uh, you said um, institutions have a tendency to condemn it over there instead of own it over here. And <clears throat> the whole time I was, I was reading the book, um, I was really captivated by it. And then I, we're both pastors in local communities, right? And I was thinking about, oh, neat. like, in, in the way that a community comes together and becomes an institution, for better or for worse. I was wondering, like, is there a, are there a couple of, like, if would you just broadcast to communities and churches, like, if you want to take seriously this vision of Christ, which is you know, that you don't constrain it. You don't, you're not like, you're not, you don't have a monopoly on it, but rather like, we're just here to help one another enter into it. Are there a couple of warnings or a couple of steps that you would preach to communities so that they can not, uh, lose that? Is it, I'm not sure the, that be, the, that being what? That, that, well, being. that being, maybe back to what I was asking before, the difference between communities that sort of proclaim, the scare because I think it, I think it's natural for an institution to want to say you have to come here to get it. Yes, and yes. you're saying the opposite of that. Yeah, which yeah. which sounds right to me. But then I'm like, what would you say to a church that wants to make sure that it doesn't fall prey to that temptation mm. to say that we have a monopoly to so come here to get it? Like, are, are there practices, are there ways of actually being together every week that you think are going to most help a community live faithful to that and not not become the kind of institution that runs the other way? See, here's the rub. The the very nature of institutions, and I'm in one right here. I founded two of them. All right, so I'm not trying to say this is other terrible people, but um, is that they want to self-perpetuate? Why wouldn't you? You want to, this still to be here next Sunday, so we can do it again. Uh, they self-maintain. They self-congratulate. Institutions, are you familiar with spiral dynamics at mm-hmm. all? Yeah, a little bit. They, they say they can't go beyond the orange level. Uh-huh. You know, you know, because once you move into universalism, like we're doing in this book, you've lost a bunch of your motivation to stick with this group. Now, the wonderful thing about the higher levels, which I call the mystical non-dual levels, is you can retrieve and reappreciate what was in fact good about that church on the corner and having a service on Sunday morning, and I need both of them. You go through the period of not needing them, which is the, forgive me, the orange and green levels, right? And that's the young, sophisticated people who think we're just stupid, right? And they're half right, you know. (laughs) You know the quote I began with, I was addressing, uh, who was it? Oh, the chaplains from the universities in all the country were here two weeks ago, and I got to give them the opening address. And I quoted Thomas Merton, 
four days before he died, he wrote this in his journal. This won't be exact, but it's close. Eventually one realizes that most of religion is laughable. That's the first sentence. Mm -hmm. Then one realizes that one is nevertheless religious. Yeah. That's what you find yourself as an elder when you can put the two of those together. Yeah. Now, most elders will not admit the first line, mm -hmm. that most of religion is laughable. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, because it threatens. Yeah. yeah. It threatens our very existence. It threatens our very existence. Uh, but but there, there is a way to do that. Now, that's if you got to the appendix where I talk about order, disorder, reorder. That's mm -hmm. what Merton was saying four days before he died. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and that's the reconstruction, I think, is... That's the reconstruction. The, the deconstruction just says it's laughable. It's laughable. You first build it up, there's nothing funny about it. And then you realize, oh, that's, there is some laughable stuff. So you have the deconstruction, and then you get to the other side and go, I see the the, dual, the duality yes, of both... I feel like I'm saying it wrong. Uh, of both the preposterous and the divine within this. Yes. And no longer... Does the presence of I think this is C.S. Lewis is like yeah the the dust and divine like you see oh, yeah. okay, both good. both the dust and the divine and the divine and, it, and it's all worthwhile and they can coexist yeah see and until you can get those to coexist really on an emotional level that you don't need people to be perfect anymore to love them yeah. you don't need them to be like you your race your sexuality your whatever when you don't need that anymore you're free you know and then and love begins. Yeah, but we have been. We thought perfection was the elimination of imperfection. That's human perfection. Divine perfection. You were talking about forgiveness before. Is precisely, precisely the ability to include imperfection. Yeah, you, you've got a line yeah. there about um, I forget who said it, but something about like uh, I've become perfect because I change a whole lot, or because I've gotten Cardinal wrong. Newman. Yeah. New okay. Newman we're, we're, was about to be canonized a saint. Made many genius statements like that. What do we need to do to get you canonized as a saint? Because uh, I'll be, I'll join that Facebook group. I will like <laughs> You're that. So sweet. Thank okay, you. Speaking of other saints, uh, you referenced Mother Teresa and what scandalized many, uh, but to others, you're like, well, yeah, that makes sense. Her acknowledgement of her season of, of dryness or distance, or mm -hmm. I, I forget the verb that she used. But then you mentioned that for the last decade, your language was you had little spiritual feeling. Feeling. Okay. Many of you, go, many of us are going to go, but you're like, you're the guy who helps us have spiritual feelings. Mm. Uh, it's unsettling for some of us to hear that and go, but, but Richard Rohr can't have little spiritual feelings because I go to him so that he can point me to where I can experience spiritual feelings. Yeah. <sighs> Forgive me, this is going to sound like deconstruction. But the other Achilles heel of Protestantism is it has very little teaching on darkness, dryness, that you got to go to the Catholic mystics yep. for that. You know, you just don't have it. You know, don't have it at all. It's all about feelings and light and not darkness. Without good teaching on darkness, you really think that the role of Christianity is to engage warm, fuzzy feelings. Mm -hmm. Now, I had enough wonderful experiences like that as a young man that I know how wonderful they are. But I would have to say the last 15 years, most of my days are putting one foot in front of the other. Mm. I don't have gooey feelings about Jesus anymore. 
is you remember in the darkness now what you once experienced in the light. Now our word for that is faith. It's just you hold on and then you realize someone else is holding on to you. But it's not based in feelings anymore. And you will, well, you're going to go through that in your love relationships. The feeling will almost be taken away some days from your partner. I don't feel like I love her at all, you know. My wife says that very often about me. (laughs) (laughs) That's necessary, necessary. The feelings are withdrawn, and you decide for love. Yeah. Then it goes deeper when you decide for love. But it has little to do with feelings. So, yeah, when Mother Teresa said that, we remember that her patron, St. Teresa of Avila, she said she went 18 years without any positive feelings. And then her faith had moved to such a deep level. You've seen these statues of Teresa in ecstasy. She lived in ecstasy for her last years by moving beyond the need for ecstasy. It was really choosing of God, God's will, whatever God wants of me. I, I don't think most of us, I don't think I'm capable of that yet. Uh, even though it, uh, probably my final years, it's going to be asked of me. But um, what do you mean by that? It's going to well, be asked of you. Well, you know, I I had a heart attack last year. I don't know if you know this, and then my prostate cancer returned. Mm. So I'm living with cancer right now. I I mean, I just got to be honest. My years are few now. I'm not in any pain, so don't feel sorry for me. But um, you really have the courage, well, probably to talk the way I'm talking. You just got to go for broke. Because, you know, I don't have anybody to please. I don't have anybody, a career I need to uh, build up to or something like that. Now, you don't have that luxury yet. And I mean that. I'm being sincere with you. You're young men who've got to maintain a church. And yet you're going to find as you get older that a lot of it will appear laughable to you, just to quote Merton again. <laughs> now, I don't want to say that to you too young. I get what you're saying. Because I want you to do the work. I work my tail off as a young man. I don't feel any need to do that anymore. I'll do what's asked of me, like I'm happy to talk with you today. But I don't have a need to save the world, you understand? Yeah. And that kind of freedom to just do whatever God presents in front of you ironically gives you the greatest freedom of all, you know? Yeah. Not to have to please anybody. When I do get, I'm sure I'm going to get some real hateful reviews of this book. Uh, The Cardinal mentioned today, he said, Mm -hmm. you know, some people are already attacking you. And uh, he was kind enough to say, but stay in there. It's Mm -hmm. not a heresy. Well, Uh, But it will happen. I forget which book he wrote this in. But you said that we learn to trust God with a little letting goes in life. So when we're at the precipice of the age to come, that we've built up the muscle memory to trust God with the big letting go right here. Yeah, you have to practice for heaven. Mm -hmm. You have to practice letting go. So when the final letting go is asked of you, well, I've learned how to do this. Is that still how you feel? Like now that... Oh, very much so, yeah. What did I ever lose by dying? I think Rumi said that. You have to have 
taken the risk a few times and realize you are bigger afterwards, not smaller. Yeah, yeah. And that's the task from 25 to 55, I'm sure. So don't feel bad if you're still doing it. <laughs> and it's, I'm still doing it now, too. <clears throat> but now I just have enough life to look back at mm-hmm. that I've seen the pattern work, to be very practical about it, that mm-hmm. what did I ever lose by dying, by giving up my own way, giving up my own will? It didn't kill me. You understand? In fact, it made me bigger. Mm-hmm. But you... you you almost can't operate that way as a young man. Yeah. You can't. You've got to create your career, your salary, your family, your education. God must understand this because he constructed the world. I mean, if you would have would talk the way I'm talking now as 30-year-old young men, it would probably be dangerous. You know what I mean? Yeah. You got to feed those kids, and that <laughs> is your responsibility. Yeah, it is. But don't let it become an addiction, so you don't know who you are. When I went home to Kansas, my father was a Kansas German farmer, uh, and he had just retired at sixty-five. I came home, and it's the only time my father ever sobbed in my presence. <clears throat> it was really hard for me to take. I. Here I was supposed to be the priest. I didn't know how to support him. You don't know how to. He's supposed to be stronger than me. Yeah. I don't know how to be the strong man now. And he said, I'm good for nothing now. Good for nothing. Because he couldn't work anymore. He couldn't support the family. He was just 65. But you were told in that era that you were your life was over, basically. And he believed all that mythology. So he went through several years of... I remember I'd come home and he'd say, I'd say, how are you, Daddy? He said, I'm sort of blue. That was his word for yeah. what we'd probably call depressed. Yeah. Uh, he never showed any outward behavior of pro, uh, depression, but I think he went through a lot of sadness that he felt useless yeah. without a role, without making money. I would come home in my little car out driving all the way from Cincinnati to Kansas, and he talked me in for about ten minutes, and then he'd disappear from the room because mother would never stop talking. <laughs> <laughs> and and sure enough, I look, he was out. The hood of my car was up. He was fixing my car. Oh. Then he could feel he had something to give me, you know, yeah. that he understood cars. The, uh, my my dad. Retired not too long ago, and we talked about it on the podcast. So I'm not breaking his confidence, but he talked about like there is a transition to going from this is who you are, this is what you do. I'm a professor, and you know I'm Doctor Norsworthy, and then now all of a sudden it's it's different, different and there's yeah. there's something that's uh, I, I'm not at that stage yet to really ponder that, but I can no. I know that it's it's out there. It's and, out there. That's all you need to know now. But yeah. like when you're in front of the, those stages, that's that's when those things become more real to you. Yeah. Like in, in the book you reference, it's almost like a throwaway thing where you say, yeah, I believe in new heavens and new earth. Mm-hmm. And so like the, the eschaton, whatever language you want to use about that, that's there. You reference it. it it's not a big centerpiece. And, and some might imagine in light of 
um, in terms of, you didn't spend a whole lot of time writing about it, and maybe that didn't fit in the book, but as you entertain mortality, does that conversation become different to you or more pertinent or... The conversation of heaven? Of, what, of what's next. Yeah. You're at Parker Palmer's language, On um, the Brink of Everything. Did you read that? Yeah. yeah, it's a good book. It's a very good book. You know, I guess if I'm honest, I don't think about it that much. I just know if this life has been as wonderful as it has been, with my feeble response, and I mean that sincerely, I'm not always the great person people think I am. Uh, what must the eternalization of this world be? Which is how I understand, you know, eternal life. What you choose now is what you will have forever. Um, so I, I guess I'm just inherently hopeful, but beyond that I have no idea what to expect. Or, you know... I really don't. Is it a big family reunion with all of humanity? I, mm. I hope so. Uh, but I don't know. I don't know. I, you know. My, my wife's grandfather, and again, I have to like caveat these stories because they're about other people. He, I, I told the story in my book, so I'm allowed to say it publicly. But his, his wife had, uh, of almost six decades passed away, and he... Uh, we're at a family gathering. He says, look, come here. And so like, I, I know like this is going to be a serious question. And so he takes me into like a back room away from the rest of the family. And he goes, when I get to heaven, am I going to be able to see my, my Shirley? Do I get a serious? And, and Old obviously couples always say that. And yes. I, I, I'm sure you've been asked that question many mm -hmm. times. And my answer is similar to maybe kind of what you were expressing. No. That I, I don't know exactly what it's like, but I mm. trust that God is love no. and that, if, if, if God is behind it, then God's going to make it right. That's a good answer. I think it's, you know, that line from Jesus has always haunted me. In heaven, there will be no marriage or giving in marriage. Yep. Don't limit it to Shirley, to one person. Now you're going to be capable of universal love. And how you loved Shirley and how Shirley loved you was the school for your capacity for universal love. You know, don't limit it to one couple. They were your training wheels. And I'm not trying to make light of marriage, but um, if the only meaning of eternity is to cuddle with your partner for all eternity, <laughs> that isn't a big enough heaven. You understand? It has to be the universal family. It has to be all of creation. I'm sure you're going to hold some kind of hand with your partner, but don't limit it to that. But it's like the, the streets of gold. Like, that's as good as we can imagine. That's as well, well put. And, as good as we can imagine. And yeah. if it's as good as, like, I can't imagine not seeing my, my daughters. Sure. Like, there's no way there's a good no future way. without that. That's right. But I know that that inclination that says, I want, I, I want that with them is going to be bigger than what, it's going to become bigger. It's going to be magnified. That would be my belief and understanding, yes. Mm. And, uh, yeah, if you if you tie it too much to your daughters, it isn't a very big heaven. Okay. They're just the gateways, hmm. and that's not to minimize them. Uh, 
But th- that's the tendency is I want to localize. Yeah. And yeah. Christ wants to uh-huh. universalize. Very good. Right? Very good. See, that's booked out and, right there. And God must understand that, that we can only know what we know. How do, how do we get away from just, I, I want to localize just to, like, this is the tribal stuff. Like, it's my people, yeah. my town, and my language, mm-hmm. my background, and, and the name of my church building. <laughs> and it's always like expanding to something bigger and bigger. Mm-hmm. And I, I want to resist that. See, and that's got to be the reign of God, the much bigger than our little kingdoms, I would think. But God uses our little kingdoms. It's okay, but be ready to let go of even that. Maybe that's the final letting go of, letting go of our small schema for a bigger one. It would have to be. But beyond that, I'm I'm living in darkness just like you are. But you said it so well. If God is love, that's all we really have. Then I can let go of needing to figure it out or fix it. Hmm. Thanks for talking about that. I, I appreciate you being vulnerable about that. I, I know you don't have to do that, but... Uh... I wasn't very hard. <laughs> <laughs> there, there's that oneness. Ah, okay, it wasn't that big a deal. Okay, so so that Jay doesn't leave your heart broken. He he, with his Notre Dame background, he wants to talk about Mary some. I know that that's okay. just near and dear to his Our heart. Lady. So I, I didn't realize that's what Notre Dame means until recently. And he's like, Notre that's what Dame. our lady. I didn't I didn't know that. She's so. up there on the do- yeah, the dome, the golden on statue. On the top of the Mary. dome. Didn't you you? You kind of made a joke about touchdown Jesus in the book, and that's also that, Notre Dame. That was kind of hard for me, wasn't? Yeah. Michael teases me about it all the time. <laughs> touchdown Jesus, yeah. Have you have you seen the uh, Notre Dame arena? No, yeah, yeah. I he he's taken me to preach at his church in Southman, but he didn't let me see that. I guess see he just wanted Jesus. me to work. Just he just wanted me to work for his little community. He didn't want me to see the entirety of his town. <laughs> so what do you want to ask me about Mary? Well, okay, you I read w- my chapter. I did. So yes, you, know you gist, see, like you said, the I, gist of what I'm saying. Yes, okay. yeah. Um, it made a lot of sense. You had this line about uh, the psych, the theology that maybe I want you to say this about your people. Yes. The the psychology is good. The theology, yes, maybe a little bit suboptimal. There, well, you say it so well. That's exactly right. Catholicism. Remember, well, you've heard me say this. I hope most of the Catholic period was with illiterate people who could not read or write. It's it's not accidental that the inventing of the printing press yep. and Luther are the same decade. Yep. And in Germany, yep. the same country. Yep. Once we had illiterate Christianity, everything changed. And it had to change. In terms of spiral dynamics, we moved to the orange level. Protestantism brought us to self-critical mm-hmm protesting Christianity, <laughs> and your gift becomes your fault, yep. you know, because you protested too much. Protesting became a way of life. Self-critique became a way of life. That's People at the orange level, if you know, are not very happy because there's always something wrong with everything. They sound like Enneagram ones. It, it's one. <laughs> well, that's what, so many ones become preachers because they like to... Clean up the world, <laughs> like me, like me. So anyway, uh, once you move to that level, which we had to move to, we lost the symbolic, the feminine, the intuitive, the artistic, the musical. Well, you did music in many ways better than we did. 
Uh, but it was all too individualistic. Me and Jesus. That was yeah, what did it in. Not the hour. Yeah. But you lost the right brain and which and you lost the feminine. Yeah. So what we were doing in Catholicism, don't look at this logically. Don't look at it rationally. I know it looks like we were making Mary into God. And as a Catholic, I got to admit, a lot of us did. She, especially in cultures where the father was absent, the father was abusive, the father was authoritarian, the father was alcoholic. The more... Uh, you had distant and mostly unavailable fathers. As I preached in 45 to 50 countries, I would see the greater love of Mary there would be. So if you see what's happening, we're not really saying Mary is God, but psychologically we need a feminine image to make God attractive. And then the atonement theory had made God the Father even more unattractive by saying he demanded blood to love us, you didn't find an organically in loving God. In most of Protestantism, it had to be achieved by moral behavior. Whatever you think of Catholicism, I know the old grace and works argument, and it was partially true of Catholicism, but it was partially untrue. The, the height of the Marian period was the 12th and 13th century which might be some of the most broad-minded Catholicism there was, you know. That's when we were born, the Franciscans. Very much in touch with the feminine. So Mary became the archetype of that. Uh, And you know what I So God is like the angry father, but Mary is nice mom. So penal substitution, God, I'm going to punish someone. Mary's the nice mom. You go to her if you don't want to get in trouble. Interesting. I never, I, I never saw that connection. But you, know, in the book, you talk about how she is uh, Jung, uh, like Jung talks about the archetypes. Yeah. So she's like this archetype. She's the f- feminine archetype of mercy, compassion, forgiveness. Look at going to Catholic Church. I mean, the, the main statue is like this. Mary's like this. You know, Jesus hanging on the cross, which his arms are open at least. But Mary ha- is always welcoming. Yeah. And if you grew up. Most of history had punitive fathers. That was the role of a father, was to be authoritarian, distant. He didn't hold his kids. He didn't raise his kids. In most cultures, you know, I went to Japan, and they said we hate three things, earthquakes, fire, and fathers. The Asian, oh. the Asian oh. father, I know, well, that it's should terrible. offend you because you're a good father, but... Uh, the Asian father never hugs his kids. So you can see what was happening psychologically inside of Catholicism. Now you come along, as you should have, in the 16th century, the birth of critical thinking in the Catholic Church, and you say, this is Mary worship. We're not saved by Mary. We're saved by the blood of the cross. And you were right, but you were wrong, (laughs) if you can follow me. I I love that you say you, like I am the entirety of the Protestant movement. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. There are a lot of Protestants who are going, don't pick him. There's a reason we don't have a Pope, because it could be someone like me, and they're like, oh, we don't want that guy. But you're right. So uh, you referenced, now this is a, obviously I never put these together, but that in some way, 
Mary is an archetype of Mother Earth, yes. and that Mother Earth. Now I know I'm really stretching it for I, you, but go ahead. I know, but we've been yeah, we've been talking ahead. for an hour and a half, so um, it's time to like get to this. So she gives us the second incarnation. So the Mother yes. Earth gives us uh, first car- incarnation is creation. Second incarnation is, is Jesus. Jesus. In some ways, she fits that kind of like because she no. gives us. We're not talking logically anymore. But I, I, of course, we had art history and a lot more study. We didn't have that. See, you didn't have that. And you look, the most painted image in Western civilization, just go to European art museum, is the Madonna, the Madonna, the Madonna, the Madonna. You just Uh get tired of Madonnas. That's why we can have a new uh, Christmas stamp each year. There's another Madonna to take a picture of. But what do you have? Always a beautifully dressed woman. It's never poor Mary of Nazareth, brocades and silks, and 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 yet she's holding this naked little boy. You want to talk about psychological wholeness? Carl Jung would just love that. So she's offering Mother Earth, the feminine Earth goddess, if you don't mind, is offering us the Jesus, who is the vulnerable God, the suffering God. The God who we have to embrace and accept. She's easier to accept than he is again. Do you understand? He's suffering and vulnerable. She's beautiful and feminine. Yeah. Feminine, put it that way. You know? So you reference Jung uh, just there. In the book, there's a line about how Jung says that he had to go down 10,000 steps on the oh, ladder I love that to quote. realize that I'm a lump of earth. A little clay? clod of earth. Clod, clod of earth. Yeah. Um, and so the, he. I, as I understand that, there's a sense that I'm I'm having to enter into unknowing and to deal with yeah. mystery. And okay, okay, this is my Protestant mind wants to deconstruct the technicality of who Mary is, and that, using that mind's not going to get where never, you're going. That's not it's never going to get there. That's not the point. Yeah. And so, what we're doing is something different. Remember, an archetype is a non-rational metaphor or symbol that holds together a whole bunch of things that the logical mind cannot hold together. Uh Let's let's pick one sec. The American flag. I mean, my God. (laughs) In your state of Texas, (laughs) the levels of meaning around the American flag are ridiculous. I mean, oh, there he's got it. There's my (laughs) Texas flag. Put that on. The Lone Star flag. Yes. it's not logical, it's not rational, and people yeah. will die for it and weep when we sing a song to it. I mean, if you had a good psychologist analyze an American crowd singing the Star-Spangled Banner, they'd say, this is, has nothing to do with rationality. Neither does Mary. Yeah. understand? Yeah. You've got to move to a different level. And somehow, when you're raised Catholic... I don't know how it happens, but you pick it up from your mother's milk, if you can use that phrase. Yeah. You, I'll meet very sophisticated young Catholic men who will still get soft-eyed and sentimental when they see a statue of Mary. I guess we learn it as little kids. I don't know. But she's good. She's safe. Uh, so we've got a. I, I hope this chapter contributes yep. to the conversation. But of course, as patriarchal as the Catholic Church was, I think we needed to do this. All these men parading around in robes 
in the sanctuary, you know. We needed to feminize the whole thing. Yeah. So um, we're psychologically confused, I think. But you are too. We, we all are. Yeah. We all are. Yeah, know? definitely. Okay, well, tomorrow is Ash Wednesday. Ash Wednesday. And so we've, we had one Ash Wednesday service at my evangelical mm-hmm. church last year, and so we're having our second one this year. And so as I'm flying back tomorrow... And I'm getting ready for this Ash Wednesday service. And I'm processing this, uh, processing this book, processing some of the ideas. Uh, there's one line that you do the, when Jesus is on the cross and he speaks to us, and then oh, yeah. when we say to him, the prayer, yeah. the, I don't know what page I'm number so that is. I'm so impressed how much of the book you read. Thank well, you. okay, okay. So here's the line that uh, we speak back to the crucified one. I thank you. F- this is a very long section. This is yes. just one line that I really liked a lot that I connected to. I thank you for becoming finite and limited, so I do not have to pretend that I am infinite or limitless. limitless. My first thought was, it reminds me that from dust I came, and to dust I shall there return. There you go. Now, you know that's a line from Genesis. Of course yes. you do. Yeah. <laughs> and for centuries, that was what was to be spoken when you put the ashes on the forehead. You came from dust, and unto dust you shall return. It's really the only remaining element of historic initiation rites. The young male, when he was initiated, was always reminded of his death. He had to dig his grave in many uh, cultures. He had to roll around in the dust naked. And that morphed into Ash Wednesday. Really, hmm. the very Just like we just poured water over the forehead to baptize him, we just put the ashes on the forehead. Uh, so it was ash. an initiation rite. Its roots are an initiation. Interesting. Line. Yeah. And so, w- what are we initiated into with the ashes? The, you know, when the woman comes and anoints Jesus for his death, sacraments are really rites of passage. We don't use them that way very well. But it's to tell you now, in the middle of your life, your young, good looking man, just know everything is signed with death. And I think at least our Mexican-American people here seem to be so attracted to that message. They will pour into church. I'll wake. I live right behind the church, my little hermitage, you know. Uh, They'll be in all day to get their ashes. It's just uncanny. But I think it's, again, non-rational. Did a lot of people come last year? To your church? Yeah, we had a good turnout. Oh, good. Yeah. And they didn't think you were trying to make Catholics out of them or anything? No, we, we yeah. actually have a very good relationship with the Episcopal Church across oh, the street. Oh, and so we've actually ch- exchanged pulpits. We swapped. Oh. Uh, I even got to wear a robe one time, which was surprisingly a lot hotter than it looks. Like <laughs> They need better air conditioning those things. But I had... Uh, uh, he had Merrill, uh, Reverend Merrill, come over, mm. and so beforehand we had a little conversation about this is the background and this is what we're going to do, and he mm. kind of explained it to us, and then everyone was fair game. The Episcopalians are so wonderful; they they f- build a bridge between Catholic and yeah. Protestant, yeah. like few other churches can. Yeah. yeah, so do it again, really, do it again. Yeah, we are, but but be honest about it. this. Remember what I said in the book: ceremonies do not allow the shadow to be shown. Fourth of July parades, right, in Texas. <laughs> Come on me. now. Come I just on. keep picking on you. You can think of a lot of things, but Texas, okay? <laughs> you know, I'm, that church that I mentioned in the chapter on Mary is Tyler, Texas. Do you live close to that? No, that's, that's East Texas. Yeah, yeah it's, uh, it's, it's, you know, I was 
teaching there and everybody seemed so macho. And I went, <laughs> I went to the cathedral and there's 11, oh, no, that's not in this book, 11 yeah, yeah. images of Mary. Yeah, that's in there. Yeah, it's, that's Tyler, Texas. That's Tyler, Texas. A macho town, and yet you go in the Catholic Church, Mary, 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 Mary. It just, I said, no wonder the Protestants think we're heretics. This doesn't look like a Christian church, even to me, yeah. and I'm Catholic. But it, it does make the point. How, yeah. uh, it's not theology that people live and die for. It's symbols, oh. like our culture wars in America are revealing right now. It has nothing to do with logic. We don't care if the president lies to us every other day, every day, really. We don't really care. We just want the symbol. And if the symbol matches our worldview, give us the symbol, forget the, the truth. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was sitting in a, in a meeting not too long ago, and people went around the room. Some agreed with me and some didn't agree with me. And I felt in my subconscious me going, oh, that person's really smart. Because they were agreeing with me. Like, I made a value judgment just about how well they, they aligned with me, because... which is, like, I like symbols. That, that This is the symbol I want, and you validate that symbol, therefore, I, like, I follow you. It's not, yeah. like, it's not rational. It's not rational. It's not rational. Just like sex isn't rational. You know, love, death, all the biggies aren't rational. Yeah. Uh. And that was where we lost our authority, when Christianity tried to be rational. And we all did after the Reformation, each in our own way. Yeah. You did it with Scripture, we did it with the papacy. Yeah. But it was the same game. Yeah, we both said our, our, our thing is inerrant, and that it, there's no flaw in logic in what yeah. we do, whether it's the Pope or Scripture. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I think spirituality is, it's, it's, as you say, it's letting go. It's faith is... Not focusing on what is seen and what is provable and what is logical, no. but what is what is unseen. That's scripture. And remember, non-rational does not mean irrational. Yeah, that's what a lot of people think you're saying. Non-rational is just a different plane yeah. than logic. Yeah, but it's still true. Yeah, it's it's like the difference of um, like proverbs. Yeah, and so this is right. If you get up early, you're going to be wealthy. Well, that then you read the book of Job and you go, wait a minute, there's something <laughs> that's more very here. Very good. There's something I bet more. You are good. a good preacher. Well, that's, that's good. I feel like that's we can't go anywhere <laughs> higher than that. Uh, Richard Ward just said he You're thinks a I'm a good preacher. preacher. Uh, Jay, how do we do over there? I think it was great. Thanks for the time, Richard. Is it enough, you think? I, I feel like we've got enough. I think we can turn this into two episodes even. All right. So, it's yours. Do what you want. Okay. Uh, the book, The Uni Universal Christ. I think it's a great title. You tell do Bono. You? Do you? He doesn't know what he's doing. He's not good with words, so you should stick with this. Well, we're immensely grateful with the first few days. Wow, that's great. Uh, for two, over the weekend, the uh, podcast was number one religious podcast. Wow. Now we got beaten by Joel Osteen from, from Texas. Texas, that's, <laughs> don't mess with Texas. When they, one last chat. Uh, yeah. Like <laughs> New Mexico projects its shadow onto Texas. <laughs> oh, it's true. In this state, the acceptable jokes are Texas. <laughs> Every state has it. Well, who do you pick on? Well, you pick on the rest of America. I guess. In Indiana? Yeah. In Michigan a lot. Oh, jeez. Okay, Texas Thank forever. You, Texas yeah. forever. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.